Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. Good to be with you. Thanks for following along here today with Bill Mayer. Welcome back. This has been fun, Bill. I really enjoyed doing this with you. Yeah, it is a blast. It's really um, something I look forward to. And um, I'm really loving the questions that we are getting. Yeah. We're covering um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job, and select questions from these books, which we have read over the past two weeks. Last week, we spent looking at 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and we'll kind of do the same thing. We're not trying to be exhaustive at all, but as we've read through these things, obviously things start to emerge, and uh, we've gotten some um, really fantastic questions, some very... Um, intuitive questions and then some things that are below the surface that really take um, a discriminating reader to see and then to start to put together. And this is one of the reasons I like reading the Bible at this pace is that you start to see things that you read just a few weeks ago reemerging either by way of similarity or sometimes contrast. And so as we get into Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job, uh, we are kind of bridging a big time gap again, like we talked about last week with the Kings and Chronicles in terms of when these books were written, um, but then how they're grouped by genre. So Job is now taking us into the wisdom literature, which is going to include Psalms and Proverbs, which is where we're reading next. So we're already into the Psalms this week. Um, but these historic books of Ezra and Nehemiah are talking about the return from the Babylonian deportation to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And the foundations of the temple and then to rebuild the temple and then to refurnish and redecorate the temple. But there's a lot going on besides just that. So there's a lot of things uh, surrounding Passover. There's a lot of things surrounding fasting. And then we're seeing some contrast that's happening for the first time in Ezra and Nehemiah as it relates to intermarriage, which becomes a late feature in both books. So we've got some, some questions and I love these questions because as we've been noting going along through the series... Um, there's been this uh, element of Gentile infusion, even, uh, you know, the Rahab story and then uh, Ruth with uh, Naomi and Ruth, and then they are integrated into the Davidic line through the genealogy, ultimately leading to Jesus. And so we've been talking about these different ways that we've seen the people of God functioning in this light of the nation's capacity and the inclusion of people who, by their faith, end up being added to the covenant community and experiencing uh, both physical and eternal salvation, as it were. And now we're getting to Ezra and Nehemiah, where there's this um, return from judgment that has brought about exile, and there is a pursuit of holiness and set-apartness that has been the downfall of Israel to date. And so one of the features that we saw that came into the end of the unified kingdom of Israel was Solomon and his foreign wives, which led him into kind of some... Um, what's the word, synchrony in terms of um, worshiping not only Yahweh, but the gods of his foreign wives, bringing them into the daily life of Israel, and then ultimately that leading Israel astray. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, setting up his high places, and then the idolatry of Israel that, that really came at, through the influence of foreign entities and led to their unfaithfulness and apostasy. Now we get to Ezra, and so uh, Ezra is shocked to discover that those who have returned with him um, and some of them who returned with him were unable to serve in certain um, temple positions because they couldn't legitimize their own um, uh, genealogies. They couldn't show where they were actually 
pure-blooded, and so they were called ceremonially unclean and unable to serve. So you're seeing this like real emphasis towards uh, covenantal purity. And then Ezra leaves and he comes back, and when he comes back, he finds out everybody has been uh, intermarrying with foreign wives, and some of them even have children at this point. And so he tears his clothes and proclaims a fast and sackcloth and ashes, and then they basically have a judgment that everybody has to divorce their foreign spouse and send their children away, and you're thinking, what is going on here? And that emphasis there is coming on a recognition that it was through their unbelief and apostasy because of outside influences that led them to um, this exile and, and attack, and then in God's returning, they have to be fully devoted. And so this is a picture of what they believe it looks like to be completely and fully devoted to Yahweh. And that says no intermarriage. So you can see how this kind of develops, but you have to be able to hold it in uh, as a caveat in the greater picture, which is Israel is meant to be God's plan of salvation for the world. And that all of that is going to be centered, not in a people necessarily fulfilling God's purpose, but in a person fulfilling for that people what they're incapable of and that becoming the messianic figure who is Christ. And so it's, it was incapable, we're incapable of purifying ourselves in enough that we can actually fulfill what God's called us to do. But you see this impulse in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a really interesting feature. And uh, there's a lot of theological disagreement about this. And um, this has historically been used to justify prohibitions of intermarriage, uh, even in our own country's history in the last 150 years. Um, there's a lot of racism that's tied into this with, with these script, scriptures as justification. So it definitely gets thick. And um, this is one of the features that came out in the questions. One of the other features that I really wanted to talk about um, was the role and function of fasting. Have you given much thought to fasting, Bill? Um, yeah, I used to fast, especially when I first got saved. I would like fast like every month. On regularly at the same interval or just um, kind of that frequently? Um, I think it, it would be like... Uh, like I even like experimented with tithing the first three days of the month. So I'd like fast three days of the first month all the time. And mm. then, um, and then it kind of, I guess it shifted and, and came up differently, uh, where, where it'd just be like a five day fast or just some, I don't know, whatever the Lord was like putting on my heart, I guess. Mm-hmm. I just kind of went with the flow yep. more or less. Yeah. So fasting, uh, for many of us in religious traditions, Christian traditions, especially is kind of like an assumption. Um, I was I was raised in an environment where people regularly fasted, um, where fasts were kind of proclaimed pastorally once or twice a year, or Lent was observed, even though we were a non-Catholic denomination. Um, and so fast, my, my mom fasted. I remember growing up and her fasting, and sometimes it would be fasting from a meal, or be fasting that meal for seven days, or she'd eat once a day, or she'd eat only in the morning or at night, or she would do a three day fast with only water, different fasts. I remember her doing that and being a kid and not really understanding it, but it became very normalized to me as like a spiritual discipline. And then it's explanation to me by those who practice fasting was that it, um, is an expression of dependence on God. It harnesses physical hunger to help your soul to be uh, hungry for God and to be focused on him. It's a, it's a great way of depriving yourself from things that draw you away from God. And so sometimes Fasting is not just seen as uh, fasting from food, but fasting from things like television or media, social media, um, chocolate, alcohol, caffeine, things that are more like stimulants or extra things in life, not necessities, but just as a way to like try to refocus yourself uh, with, with the Lord, which which makes sense and it's highly effective functionally. Um, but like many things, um, my my unchurching brought me to ask questions of everything. And it's always the, why do we do that? And 
the stereotypical answers or the boilerplate answers that I got weren't sufficient enough for me. And so I remember um, kind of casting off fasting as a, as a practice. Um, people would do fasts and invite me to do fasts, and I would just be like, no, I don't fast. And, of course, there's um, times when Jesus specifically addresses fasting in the Gospels. Um, and so uh, actually this a phone call this past week where someone was calling asking specifically about fasting and some of the questions we had about the fasts that were proclaimed um, in Ezra, Ezra 8, 21, 23, which I actually had planned to preach on and then just didn't have time to fit it into the sermon. But this is where Ezra is about to leave Babylonia for Jerusalem on a long voyage with all of this great wealth. And he's ashamed or embarrassed to ask the king for an armed guard because he just said, hey, our God's the greatest ever. And so he proclaims a fast and everybody fasts and for three days and then they set off and God answers them and protects them on their journey. But there's that fast. And it kind of brings us to the overarching question of what is the origin of fasting and what does the Bible uh, teach, command, or prescribe that we should do in terms of fasting? So this is the question that I went back on. And if you've had any part of this journey, feel free to jump in. Um, I'm not in any way trying to downplay the obvious effect, effectiveness of fasting or the spiritual value of fasting. There's a bunch of my favorite books on spiritual disciplines. Uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline has um, a section on fasting. Uh, John Piper's book, Hunger for God, is a great treatise on fasting. Um, and so there's definitely value to be had in fasting. And really, I believe pretty much every major religion has some form of fasting. And so this is something that is just kind of like part of the religious experience, whether you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian. Um, and so there's a lot of fasting that's just normalized, but kind of as like a Protestant evangelical, I'm always asking, okay, where did this come from in the scriptures? And so I early came to believe that, th that fasting was only referenced in the Bible as descriptive and not as prescriptive, that there's not like a section of the Bible that's like, here's what a fast is. You don't eat in, during these hours or these types of foods or for this length of time. Um, everything that we see about fasting comes by way of inference. And so there's evidence of different kinds of fasts that were proclaimed and that we see that fasting was obviously commonplace and a common practice throughout the centuries. But there isn't a section of the scripture that says this is what fasting is and this is how you ought to do it. And so that combined with the tension around fasting that is highlighted in the Gospels. So Jesus talks about our motives for fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you fast, don't do it for attention like the hypocrites do, but instead hide your fasting. Make it so people can't even tell you're fasting. Don't talk about it. Let it be a thing that's between you and God, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you in Matthew chapter 6. So Jesus is obviously speaking to the heart motive and the expression, the details around how um, Jews should be fasting in the first century. Then the question is, of all the things that changed with the advent of Christ, is fasting one of them? And so Jesus was criticized with his disciples for not fasting while John's disciples did fast, you'll recall. And Jesus' answer was, um, you don't fast when the bridegroom is with you. And so he's basically saying, since I'm here, we are celebrating, we're not, we're not fasting. And so fasting obviously has like a, um, a seeking that which is distant or um, beseeching help or sadness or brokenness or repentance. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm here now. There's no reason for all that. And so um, in my early Christian walk, um, questioning everything in my kind of quasi-deconstructive um, period, I kind of drew the conclusion that like fasting was a thing that had happened for a long time. And some people still do it and find it valuable, but there's nothing in particularly Christian about fasting. And so obviously if you're making some huge life choice and you're seeking God, sure, fast. 
if you're broken over some sin and you're showing God how serious you are and you're expressing repentance through a fast, great fast. Um, but other than that, um, there's no like Christian version of fasting. And I kind of landed right there and I stayed there for a very, very, very long time. And I do think that there's a lot of people who are there either purposefully or just by way of ignorance going, well, I don't really know how to do this or why to do this. And I tried it and, um, maybe it, maybe it didn't seem to do anything for you. Maybe you had a dangerous experience like I did. I remember when I was 18, um, we were going to a, um, like a singles conference and I was working construction and burning 10,000 calories a day and sweating buckets of sweat. And everybody was like, oh, we're just going to fast the day before we leave. And I remember not eating and not like drinking only water and trying to stay hydrated. And I was like so sick by the end of the day. I was like, I got to midnight and Tiffany dragged me to Denny's and I ordered three entrees <laughs> and I felt terrible. And I was like, this didn't do anything. And I felt awful and I'm never doing this again. So I don't know what your experience has been with fasting, but I think it's a really important uh, topic for us to consider. Yeah, and I feel like um, for me, if I was going to, in my experience, it's like there's always a grace to fast. Mm. Uh, like if I go through one day and like I'm dying at like six hours into the fast, I'm like, okay, I initiated this. I'm on just a funky diet. I'm not seeking the Lord. Like this is not, the Lord didn't initiate this for me. Right. And so I don't do it. Like, cause I remember one um, five day fast I had, uh, it was like cake. Oh yeah, it was nothing to it. Oh, it's weird. It's weird though. Like, cause like, you know, I had the grace for five days, but then, you know, you, you turn around and you start like, okay, I'm going to do two day, one day fast and you can't even go the whole day. Like, you're like, oh, there's no grace for this. Like the Lord's not in this, obviously. I made this one up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the thing that uh, stuck out to me as I went back to kind of more closely evaluate this in my study this week, because of this question that um, I answered somebody on the phone and then because of the question we received via email, um, really going back to kind of see like the, the holistic kind of um, comprehensive perspective on fasting in the whole Bible. And what I didn't realize, and we actually just read through this, um, there is a fast that is proclaimed to all Israelites in Leviticus. Not It's the Day of Atonement, but it's not Leviticus 16. It's not until you get to the specific um, instructions for all of the feasts in Leviticus 27 that we are told um, that we should fast, but it's buried in uh, a Hebraic euphemism. And the euphemism is afflict your souls in the English Standard Version. And uh, I'm, I'm still working on my Hebrew, so I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the word there, I believe, is anah. And it, it means specifically that, but it carried a meaning that was not literal. And to afflict one's soul or the seat of one's appetite was to purposely deny oneself of food. Uh, I believe that word's also used to describe like uh, natural hunger from um, like being kept from food. But most of the time it's about an intention. And the key to unlocking the meaning of that we find in Isaiah 58, where that phrase is set directly connected to fasting. And so um, I'm, not, I'm blanking on what verse it is, but in Isaiah 58, there's a passage that talks about afflicting one's soul and fasting from food. And they're connected with a semicolon, which is kind of a, a typical um, Hebraic composition to say something twice in two different ways. But that definition is attached to this afflicting of one's soul. And so if you were an Israelite um, at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, then there would be a one-day fast, and that would be where you would... Um, afflict your soul on the day before the Passover, on the day of preparation, I believe, 
and deny yourself food. And so there is a prescribed fast for the people of God. Um, and then this obviously in seed form becomes the justification for the purpose of this. And of course, it's repentance, the seeking of God, the receiving of what God wants to give you, um, focusing your attention with all of your internal and carnal faculties on the purpose of God, harnessing your, your natural desire for food and to satisfy hunger on uh, what you truly need, what, that which is truly bread, uh, being God himself. And so uh, it seems that there's a, of all the fasts and fasting practices in the world religions, Israel's fasts were specifically tied to atonement and forgiveness and salvation. And then we see that uh, grow throughout Israel's history from a descriptive uh, model, not a prescriptive model. And so there are kings who proclaim fasts when there's some repentance. And this goes beyond the borders of Israel too. So you get to Jonah and Jonah goes to Nineveh to not to preach, uh, you better change uh, if you want God to forgive you, but hey, calamity is coming because of how evil you are and that's it. And the Ninevites, this is the capital city of Babylon, the Ninevites proclaim a fast and saying, maybe God will be merciful. Like they don't even know. They have no reason to think that God would um, hold off this judgment. Uh, and so they proclaim a fast as an expression of repentance. The Ninevites do, the Babylonians. And so, uh, and God does. God doesn't um, doesn't execute his judgment on them because of their repentance expressed in this fast. And so we see fasting um, eventually becomes ritualistic. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, the common practice for the Pharisees, I believe, was to fast every Tuesday and every Thursday. And so the Pharisees fasted twice a week, every week. And so this was something that was a part of your daily relationship to God. And of course, we know of the errors of the Pharisee was essentially legalism, where we turned the commands of God and the expressions from the religious leaders teaching tradition into a series of rules that would be kept and would justify someone by means of their own righteousness. Jesus, of course, explodes that along with everything else that's not of God and shows himself to be the fulfillment of those things and sets his disciples free from this practice of fasting because they are with him. And so the question then becomes for the Christian, are we now in this age where we have Christ and don't need to fast anymore at all and fasting is a thing of the past? Or are we in an age where our fasts continue some of the elements uh, and benefits of fasting historically, but not necessarily all of them, that there's like a fulfillment element of the fasts that Christ has fulfilled in the Yom Kippur sense, but then there's also a spiritual benefit um, to the fast. And so this is the question. So what do you think about Mark 20 or 220 right after that? He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away right. from them and then they will fast in that day. Right. So like, isn't he, or like, or does there a deeper meaning? What are your thoughts on that? I think that, well, that's been, that's been read in two ways. One would be when Jesus was killed that, and then before his resurrection, there was fasting and weeping and mourning that took place between his death and resurrection in a very narrow application. And so that would be specifically a reference to that particular time. And then after his resurrection, he's back with us and present by the Holy spirit. Um, or that now he's gone away to prepare a place for us. And now we're interacting with him again from a distance uh, by his spirit in a new covenant age. But fasting then becomes a tool that Christians are supposed to use, which of course we see two fasts um, happen in the book of Acts. And I believe chapter 13 and 15, uh, 13 and 16, I, I didn't go back and put it in my notes, but there are two times in the book of Acts where the early Christians who had already received the Holy Spirit do fast 
And so then the question becomes, all right, well, you're seeking God for an answer. You're looking for some direction or you're in some travail. It still seems that fasting is kind of a go-to thing. Then the question, of course, becomes, is that meant to be prescriptive or descriptive? And just because the early disciples had this practice of fasting and this is the thing they did, is that thing they're supposed to do? And the same thing can be said for the casting of lots, right? So how was it that they chose who was going to replace Judas Iscariot? Was they cast lots? This is the thing they should have done. Is this a holdout from the old way they used to think? Is this something that stops uh, now that the Holy Spirit is here? We're supposed to be listening different, being led different. And so you end up with these same types of questions. And pe- people in good faith are going to land in different places. And I think there's going to be a like a subjective sense of, is this a thing that we ought to do? Do you derive some benefit from it? Obviously, we want to maintain the prohibitions uh, and warnings that Jesus gives us. We don't want fasting to become a thing that makes us think we're morally better than other people. This is not something we're trying to do to gain attention. Um, this is not something that, that forces God to do a thing for us. It really is an expression of dependence, you know, in the same way that we take the Lord's Supper, in the same way that we uh, submit to Christ's command to be baptized as, as an expression of our union with him through faith in Jesus. Like these are things that we do and they have their physical outward expressions of inward realities and we do them on a regular basis and they don't become a work that leads to salvation, um, but they are something that has like deep meaning and value. Like I can't imagine like just not thinking baptism was important or not taking the Lord's Supper ever. Like it's so deeply meaningful then um, it's this gift from God that we are meant to receive. And so I think I've kind of like widened the horizon for myself of what fasts can be. And I also find in myself too, like, I don't know if you've experienced this, Bill, but like if I'm going through something really, really difficult relationally or personally, if I'm struggling with something, whether it's something that God's convicted me of that I need to change, or if I've hurt somebody or if somebody's angry with me, or if I have some decision I have to make and I don't know what to do, like I find in myself a desperation that eliminates my appetite, you know, like I just, I can't focus on feeding myself. I'm only focused on like seeking the Lord. And so like, there's like a, I find in myself a natural kind of impulse to like put away, whether that's, you know, a meal or two or a day or whatever. And sometimes, like I said, it's like stimulants or things that you don't really even need at all, but that we're actually like, uh, you're kind of forcing yourself. You're like, um, defibrillating your soul a little bit to go, all right, wake up and things are not normal. And we're, we're putting all our attention and focus on this one particular thing. So I think there is some spiritual benefit from fasting. Um, and I still have this little chip in my, on my shoulder, my spiritual shoulder when someone tells me like, okay, we're doing this fast and everyone needs to do it. And I'm like, oh, you, you do it. <laughs> do you, I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but don't you impose your fast on me. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, but that's just between me and the Lord. He can fix me on that in the, yeah. And if I could just add to that, like the, uh, I don't think the jury's out for that for my thought either. Cause the next two verses, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth mm-hmm. on an old garment, the right. patch pulls away. Exactly. And then same with the old wineskins, new wineskins. So he's obviously making a difference between the Pharisees and the real disciples. Like, right. so it's like, what's the greater context? I'm not saying I know the answer, but yep. important to consider those two verses. Yeah. I believe, uh, Richard Foster in his books, uh, celebration disciplines talks about fasting in terms of new wineskin. I think he actually calls the chapter, maybe I'm confusing that with a different author but one of the authors that i read recently like called it like fasting for new wineskins like we're going to do this but we're going to do it differently and it's going to have different meaning and different significance and different value so i do i do hear people uh, oftentimes just kind of like change the definition of fasting to be like stop doing anything you typically do as a way of showing god how serious you are and i think that's a little trivial um personally i think like if if you're going to have this fast and this kind of happens in a lot of churches where you know there's like 
multiple times a year where there's like a 21 days of prayer or there's like seven prayer nights in a row and everyone's kind of called to fast all at the same time. And then there's, they're trying to accommodate lots of people. And so there's like, Oh, you know, super Christians are going to go no food for seven days. And you know, the moderate Christians are going to do dinner only for seven days. And then, you know, you weak minded people can give up coffee or chocolate. And then for those of you who just aren't interested, just, you know, delete Facebook from your phone until Sunday or, you know, and that's not what fasting is. Like those are just like, those all become like external ritualistic things that you're doing that unless you really are doing them from a place of sincere faith and it's possible that you are, but, um, it's, those things can be completely arbitrary and meaningless. Yeah. That seems like such a farce to me that everybody would be like, okay, you all are by the same standard, you know, right. Nobody's going to eat for the next seven days. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. no, that yeah. doesn't work for everybody. Exactly. You know, people with health problems or, yeah. or stuff. It's just like, what is your personal best and what do you want to give to God? Seems like God's character more than, okay, let's hold everybody to this standard here. Right. And this is not, um, your, pa- your pastor is the King of Israel and, um, the, Chaldeans are about to attack. <laughs> you know, that's like a, di- a slightly different setting. Um, you know, you everybody fast because we could all be dead in three days. It's uh, red dawn. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So we, we we come back to that conversation that we've had again and again on the podcast to talk about the continuity and discontinuity and the role of Christ fulfillment, the old age, the new age, the old covenant, the new covenant. Uh, what are the things that we're meant to look at and understand how they find expression and fulfillment in Christ? And then for those of us who are joined with Jesus by faith what, and, and experience the, the residential power of God's life-giving spirit, what do these things look like for us now and how are those things expressed? And I think that that requires um, humility and vulnerability and nuance and wisdom. And um, so that's kind of part of the journey. Wait, can I just add one last thing? Like Isaiah 58 has been like a good chapter for fasting yeah. if you can like really yep. think about it but yep. i'm thinking like uh, if i consider all of the fasts throughout the bible that i that come to mind readily is like you know in, in verse four he says you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high it seems mm-hmm. like he's saying that that's the point is to like make your voice heard on high right like hey i want to be close to god so like when they repent they're saying hey okay we need to fast so that god can hear it. not that god won't hear you if you don't fast but like it's like th- an amplification. Yeah, it seems like all of those processes, um, or the the processing of putting off self to become closer to God. I mean, whether it's cultural mm-hmm. or biblical or however you want to look at it, but like that's the point, mm-hmm. more or less. And it seems like that all those things fit in that framework, right? You know, like uh, with Ezra, Esther, like oh no, Esther is going to die. Let's all fast for three days. Right. Like, hey God, hear us. As mm-hmm. Ezra's needing protection yep. on the way there, like, hey God, hear us, please hear us and protect us. Like, yeah, and that's a great that's a great link. So one of the things I love about um, trying to fit all of these books as we read them into the chronology of the scripture, it starts to bring about these features where you recognize like humanity is very dynamic, and God's relationship with humanity is very dynamic. And it's our tendency, especially in the West, to, to, to try to have a category for everything that kind of puts God into a box, right? And so, like, consider for a moment um, the beauty of Esther. Esther's this incredible book, um, rich, so rich. The The picture here, though, and, and you've probably heard this before, but Esther's the one book in the Bible where God is not mentioned, like, at all. And, like, that's on purpose. And the purpose is, like, let's, let's look at, um, the world in which we live from the perspective of faith where God is invisible. And in Esther, God is 
completely invisible, an invisible force. And so what you end up with is people in dire situations exercising their faith to do the right thing, no matter what it costs them and not knowing if and how and when God is going to respond. And then the way in which we see God respond is um, presented to us by way of coincidence, right? So, you know, there's this tension in Esther that's building between Haman, who's like just hates Mordecai and the fact that Mordecai won't bow to him and won't give him, you know, this reverence that he he's so thin skinned and so self-focused and egotistic and um, and he wants him dead, you know, and. And here he's trying to like, he's tricking the king into eliminating all the Jews and nobody knows that Esther's a Jew. And so there's like great like plot tension that's developing. And then there's this night, you know, um, uh, King Xerxes can't sleep. Oh, okay, where's that coming from? And so he just randomly decides to have someone read to him from the annals and someone randomly opens up to the this story of this recorded uh, thing about, oh, there was a plot to kill you and, oh, I wasn't killed. And who was that? That Did anybody ever do anything for that guy? No, it was Mordecai. Oh, we need to do something for Mordecai, you know? And then, of course, the next day, Haman's there. Hey, let me ask you a question. What would you do to honor somebody? And, of course, you think, oh, it's me. And, and like, the whole thing is just, like, it's just, it's just coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. No, it's the picture of providence, of God's answering prayers, of God maneuvering in ways that are outside of our control while we are trusting him and doing the thing that we are called to do, even though if it means that we face down death. And so here's Esther, who's in this specific position, not, not a great position. Like, okay, she happens to be beautiful, and so now she's added to the king's harem, and because of her youth and beauty, now she's forcibly turned into the queen and like, but has no power. She's essentially a toy for this foreign king. Like this is not a good situation for her, but she is placed in this position as the book says for such a time as this. And so you see the sovereign hand of God working in a corrupt and broken world to preserve his people, which of course contain his purposes. And so if, so as Esther goes, so goes the Israelites. And so they proclaim a fast and she's doing a bold thing and she's fasting and everyone's behind her and all of these different cities, 27 cities all throughout this region and all the Jews are coming together and, you know, the whole thing gets turned on its head. And, um, of course there's kind of like the Jew, the, the tail end of that's kind of like the Jewish take on vengeance where, you know, oh, you attack us and we're going to, we have the right to, to kill you. And it ends up being this, like, who's going to attack who stand off and, um, you know, anyway, all this stuff happens and, and you just get this, this picture of like, man, there's, there's kind of crazy things happening through the storyline, but the purpose of God remains the same. Now you take that, you take this like Jewish infiltration into the world of, uh, Babylon and uh, Esther's kind of like positional apex as the queen. And you contrast that with now Ezra and Nehemiah returning with these exiles and having this emphasis on purity. And then, um, you know, if you don't have your genealogy squared away, you're unclean and you can't serve. If there's any, uh, there's any um, lack of clarity about what tribe you come from or whose you belong to, like you're not listed. And if you've taken a foreign wife, divorce her. And if you have kids, send them away. Like there's this emphasis here that's on like, we've got to keep this thing pure. And I think that it's, when you look at it, you have to start asking the question, like, is this what God wanted? What was the, what's the storyline here? Is that, what's the, what the, what's the picture here? Um, cause of course in Malachi, God's going to like confront his people for divorcing their spouse. So like, these are the, these are the tensions that I think require, um, really, really, um, in, like, uh, Godward in, intuitive, um, consideration and contemplation. And to ask that question, like, we don't want to undermine the, the, 
perspicuity of scripture or the the value of God's revealed word to us, but we have to ask the question like, okay, why was Ezra responding this way? Why was he like aghast that a room in the temple had been given to be the storage unit of one of Israel's enemies? And why did he throw all this stuff out on the sidewalk? But you see there's this pursuit of the pa- and passion for the purposes of God and for the purity that God calls for. And like that impulse is to be celebrated and is presented for us in Ezra and Nehemiah as like something to be like lauded. Like these guys were serious about fulfilling the purposes of God in this nation and not being infiltrated. And this really um, creates a striking uh, contrast for the, the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Right, because the Samaritans were these non-Jewish people who started living Jewish, acting Jewish. They received the five books of Moses. Uh, they were taught in them in order to kind of uh, placate who they did not understand to be the God of Israel. And now you have this tension between, you know, are they the Jews didn't see them as legitimate at all, and they looked down on the Jews. Um, and there was this ra- tension, racism that was between the two of them during the ministry of Jesus. And, um, and all of that comes into this, like, where, where is the purpose of God? And this is why you need Jesus to make sense of these things. Like, you've got to see how this is leading to, like, no, Israel, you will never be pure enough. No, Israel, you're meant to be a light to the world. That's why we celebrate the inclusion of Ruth and Rahab and, um, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch and the movement of God's covenant that's now unleashed in Acts beyond the borders of Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Like um, Jesus is the epicenter of the faithfulness of God's son, Israel. He is He is the embodiment of righteousness in human form. Uh, he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the system. He is the priest. He is the king. He is the prophet. And it all centers on him. And so that's why these, uh, these retrospective views of um, this um, impulse against intermarriage is not something we're supposed to replicate. You know what I'm saying? Like we're all part of God's race. And yet the Apostle Paul, you get to 1 Corinthians 6 and he starts to take these same things and say, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Right? So it's not about the color of the skin or the nationality or language or background of the person you're marrying. It has nothing to do with anything. But as a Christian, you ought not to be joining yourself to someone who believes differently than you do. Right? How can how can the two walk together uh, unless they become one? So like this is this is the picture. So there are definite spiritual implications, but they have to be seen through the Christ lens. And um, that's why we got to keep that in front of us as we make our way through uh, the Old Testament, especially when these parts seem to be contradicting themselves. And uh, so these are really insightful questions. Good job. All right. I want to talk about fasting as it relates to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 21. Now, this is not in our reading, but uh, it's connected to this topic of fasting. And I got a specific question from Rebecca um, and this, this came after the sermon on Sunday where I referenced, I think I referenced this in all three services, but, um, <clears throat> if you're listening to this in the service you were in, you didn't hear this. I know I said this in at least one, maybe two, hopefully all of them. Um, but I referenced, um, preaching Palm Sunday, a Palm Sunday message and, um, referencing my old notes from previous Palm Sundays and finding in my 2014 sermon, a copy and pasted excerpt from Wikipedia that very strongly um, upheld the historicity of Jesus in both the scriptural um, record and also in the extra scriptural record um, from historians like Tacitus and Josephus and others. And the article was very strong to say, yes, absolutely, Jesus 
existed. It's unquestioned. He was a real historical figure. He's a, there's great evidence that he was real. And we also have great evidence that his closest followers believed to their own death that he both died on a Roman cross and was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. And they believe that so strongly that they died unwilling to recant. And this belief is what changed the landscape of human culture and was the birth of Christianity. So this is the, this is the perspective. And now if you go back to that Wikipedia article, it is, has some of the same details, but it's written completely differently to accent the uh, authors and historians who doubt the veracity of the witness of the scriptures and tell us that, yes, there was a real Jesus, but there's almost nothing we can know about him for sure. This is the way that the article is written now. And that's scary to a lot of people, right? Um, In our lifetime, Bill, we have gone from living in a world with no internet and you and I are what seven or eight years apart, yeah. so not that much. But I mean, I, like I grew up with a Encyclopedia Britannica on a bookshelf in my house, missing the volume for P. <laughs> you know, we got it at the thrift store, and like all of the de- accessible data I had was 28 years old in 1994, and I didn't have anything that started with the letter P, <laughs> and that was the access to to the body of the world's knowledge. And yet, by you know 1999, 2000. Um, beyond AOL Instant Messenger, you started to be able to have access to anything anybody would link to the internet. And by the time, you know, I'm 25, 30 years old, I can Google search and find just about any everything that's been digitized and is available. Now, now we're in this age where that has become a threat to those in power. And so those who have those search engines um, now use those search engines to direct us to the things that Initially, it thought we wanted to read by seeking to monetize us, and now those are being um, controlled through government agencies and and uh, the weaponization of um, other bureaucracies in our justice system in order to control what people have access to based on the justification of mis- and disinformation. And so it's a scary time for us to be alive. It feels very Orwellian. It feels very much like the social agendas of Nazi Germany. And so if you know anything about how our world fell apart in the late 30s and 1940s in Europe, this stuff just feels like scary. And so when you're reading your Bible and you get to Matthew chapter 17 and there's no verse 21 in your Bible and there's a, and you go, okay, why is this not here? Why is this being erased? Uh, It can, it can throw a little red flag up. Now, I don't know. I know we've talked about this a little bit in the podcast, but there's great evidence to the clarity and preservation of scripture. And there are just innumerable footnotes about every single variation in the scriptures. Anytime there's some anomaly or there's some um, variation between early manuscripts, there's going to be some brackets and a footnote and any decent Bible translation is going to help you to actually grapple with the handful of like actually legitimate Uh, questions about sections of scripture, like the end of Mark in Mark 16, or the the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery um, at the beginning of John chapter 8. So these are places where we know that these were not part of the original manuscript, and they were placed there. And we know that because there's lots of evidence textually that there's manuscripts without these. And then they show up here and there and in some other places, and they're floating around looking for a place to land. And then they landed in a great place, and everybody was happy with that. But we know that that's how that happened, right? So I don't want you to feel like you can't trust your Bible. Um, I do want you to feel like you can't trust the internet. (laughs) But 
um, you're going to find your competing articles on just about everything that you are interested in. But I want to talk just a little bit about um, Matthew 17, 21 as it relates to fasting. So Matthew 17 has this little pericope, this little story about uh, Jesus being gone and coming back to his on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is uh, also seen in Mark chapter 9. So Mark's got it. Matthew's got it. And Jesus comes down from the mountain and there's some hullabaloo about a man who brought his demon-possessed son who is um, foaming at the mouth and throws himself into the seizures, into water and fire. And he brings this boy to the disciples who at this point had received uh, power from Jesus to do the same works that Jesus had done and had been casting out demons. And yet they're unable to cast out this demon. And so Jesus arrives down from the Mount of Transfiguration into this crowd. And um, Matthew tells this story differently than Mark tells this story. And this is, again, same story, same details, but Matthew has a purpose in telling the story. Mark has a purpose in telling the story. Matthew places it specifically in a location in his narrative to carry a theme. Mark places this specifically in his narrative to carry a theme. This is what it looks like to have two different people who know the same thing, who were there for the same story or heard it from the same kind of person, and to tell it in a way that it has a meaning, that it can have both meanings. So this is the variation between these stories is not evidence that they're untrue, but that there was two individual people experiencing the same thing and bringing away from it takeaways that affected them differently. And then retelling that story with specific details included or omitted that um, push their agenda, which are stated and clear. This is normal. But Matthew chapter 17 and verse 21 as an entire standalone verse where Jesus says that this kind of demon cannot be cast out without prayer and fasting is omitted because in the earliest but not most plentiful early manuscripts, it is not present. Okay? So if you have a good uh, English Bible, there's going to be a footnote about that. So how do we think about this and don't, should we be afraid that there's things just being erased from our Bible and why? So this is the kind of, this is the kind of issue. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I just recently engaged in some Facebook stuff about this. There's some hmm. viral TikTok videos about this verse being removed and everybody's got like on the alarm scene, they're like, oh no, now they're changing the Bible. Yeah. And um, one of the things that's really benefited a lot of my Bible reading, this is like a, a tool for your tool belt if you're listening, is like redaction criticism. Yeah. And how the author has arranged the text. Like, why did he put the text this way? So like one thing, if you flip a chapter over to Matthew 18, you'll get the uh, shepherd who leaves to the 99 to go after the one which is different than in Luke 15, right? right? Same parable, different meaning because Matthew is talking about church correction. Go win your brother and bring him back. He's not talking about saving lost people in Matthew 18, but however Luke is, and it's how they've arranged the text. So like if, if I'm still like thinking about this, but like I'm thinking in this section, there's some chiastic structure, like Mm -hmm. Jesus is Lord at Mm -hmm. the top of 17. And then you get, this space in the middle with the demoniac and then you get Jesus, you know, he's paying the temple tax and he basically says, I'm son of the God. Right. I'm, I'm Jesus. Son <laughs> I, of don't God. Pay the, I don't have to pay the tax. Yeah. So like you, he's like the middle piece is like, I think he's making the point in this section on, you know, like because of this unbelieving generation, I'm going to die. Yes. Like I'll be crucified. A hundred percent. Wow. That, that's cool. And that's what Matt, that is exactly <laughs> Matt. The, what, what Matthew is bringing his readers on a journey to show that Jesus is both the Son of God and purposed to be 
betrayed and executed. This is what Matthew's trying to get you to see because on its surface, the betrayal and execution of Jesus would prove that he isn't the son of God. And Jesus is saying very clearly, this is the evidence that I am the son of God. And so Matthew's taking you on a journey to draw you to that very conclusion. And he's doing it beautifully. I mean, artistically. It's phenomenal. I absolutely love this. And this is why it's really helpful for us to think about the purpose, the authorial intent in this verse, right? So let's just talk about let's just talk about verse 21 for just a second, okay? So it is in some versions of the Bible. It is not in some versions of the Bible. The versions that it is in have it in there because either they come from a Latin tradition, so the Catholic Bible is going to have it in there, and they're using the Latin Vulgate and the Greek manuscripts that were used to bring about the Latin Vulgate because that's part of their translation uh, history. The Protestant Bibles, who are not playing into that kind of historical translation and Catholic teaching, and remember there's a, there's a lot of Catholic teaching about exorcism, and so this verse is in a lot of the Catholic exorcism material. And so that's going to maintain in those Catholic Bibles. But when you get to Protestants who aren't interested in the role of the church and the view of the church, they're going back to the original manuscripts and saying, which manuscripts not are the most plentiful that were copied the most from a certain manuscript in the second, third century, but what are the oldest, most reliable ones that we have, even if, even if let's say they ended up in the hands of the Essenes or in the Dead Sea Scrolls, or if they were... Um, in the Coptics, or they were in Syriac, but they're earlier. And the earlier manuscripts do not include Matthew 17, 21. It's not in there. And so you're left with four options, and consider these for a moment. Number one, Matthew 17, 21 is original. Matthew wrote it, and it's meant to be in there. And one or more scribes mistakenly omitted it. So was writing and got to the end of the day and got to verse 20, and the next day started and didn't realize that 21 wasn't included and just went to 22. That's possible scenario number one. I don't think that's very likely. The next one is that Matthew 17, 21 is original and that one or more scribes intentionally deleted it. So at some point, this was copied and someone who was copying it did not like that verse and had a motive to remove it. Now, this is very unlikely because this is the kind of stuff that gets you fired from being a scribe forever and there was lots of people watching your work to make sure nothing like this was going on this would be very hard to get away with and there would have been very uh extenuating circumstances that would have allowed this to ever happen and it was very uh unlikely because this is not the kind of things scribes were typically known for and if they were going to do that they would be more like you know origin going i don't like this whole section or this whole chapter or this whole work and so it's out not not piecemealing tiny little pieces out so this is very unlikely the third option is that Matthew 17, 21 is not original and one or more scribes mistakenly added it. So you got a scribe who just finished Mark's gospel and remembers reading Mark 9, 29 and seeing that that is in there without the word fasting and goes, oh, I don't know why this isn't here. This is supposed to be right here. And so just put it in from memory. Now, this is like the least likely scenario because th that is like for a scribe to put something in that's not in front of him and that is connected to a whole different work. Like that, that's very, 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 very unlikely in my estimation. The most likely scenario and the only other option is that Matthew 17, 21 is not original 
and one or more scribes intentionally added it. And then you have to ask the question, why would they add it? Why would they put it in there? And this is where I'm taking us back to the conversation about fasting. So fasting has been such a part of historical tradition, and there's such little amount of fasting talked about in the New Testament, and it's not prescribed, that it made, there was a big motive uh, in early traditions, especially in the circles that uh, were handling the Latin translations and translating in like third, fourth century, this would be like pre-Augustinian period, um, to have an emphasis on fasting and to accompany fasting with prayer. And so in that particular time, fasting and prayer went synonymously to, to each other. And there had been a great deal of time, had, you know, hundreds of years have passed by since the original writers of the Gospels have died. All of these copies of the scriptures, the scribes and priests are very familiar with the variations between Mark and Matthew's Gospel. And they've got this component in Matthew's version that really squares away with the priority that they have but it's missing from Matthew's gospel. And there's not a better time to enter it than right here. And so the most likely scenario is that a scribe added, this kind is cannot be cast out apart from prayer and fasting as a gloss in the third or fourth century. And it's just the fact that those early manuscripts after that took place became the copies by which many more copies were made. But here's the good news. All of this information is completely available to you, and there's a footnote at that verse explaining why it is or isn't present in your Bible. And so no one's trying to hide anything, and there's enough eyes on this that you don't have to worry about anybody getting away with anything. So there's nothing really to be afraid of, and this is one of the very few instances where there's actually like substantial like content that's on the table to go like, is this here, should it not be here, and why was it here, why was it not here? But those are really your only four options. So this brings me back to this whole issue. Now, now we go back to the pericope, okay? So Bill pointed out the chiastic structure in 17. And now we go back to this, the section of Jesus casting out this demon. Now let me ask you this question. What, um, what connection does verse 21 have with the larger section about the boy? Nothing. There's literally no connection. In fact, it's a complete aberration. Jesus here is saying it's a lack of faith, Right? That's what it is. There's a lack of faith. Something is, maybe maybe it got hard. Maybe this demon didn't respond initially and everybody spooked and then everybody was afraid and then everybody was unbelieving. And then the, the lack of faith kept this from happening. Of course, when Jesus shows up, he doesn't have to believe who he is. He knows who he is. He has complete control over everything. So he doesn't need, Jesus doesn't need to pray and fast to get this demon out. The disciples didn't have time to pray and fast. Is the implication here that Jesus had been praying and fasting and he was all prayed and fasted up and this was the only reason he had the authority to cast out this demon? It doesn't make any sense or square with any other description of Jesus in Matthew's gospel or in this section. And it actually quite substantially diverts away from the point of the larger section that it's in. That is, Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is dying and his rejection is evidence that what he prophesied was true. And this insert about prayer and fasting seems to be exactly that. And so don't worry about it. Shouldn't be there. And I'm glad it's not in the ESV and the RSV and NIV. But it's not being erased and not, you're not in danger of losing the Bible. And I feel like, uh, if anything, it detracts from you actually seeing the meaning that he's trying to make. And so just so everybody's on the same page when we say chiastic, it, it like comes from chiasm, which is like a Jewish way of writing to be like in the pattern is A, B, C, B-A, and you'll see this a lot. And so Matthew, who's writing to Jews, yep. uses chiasm because it relates to Jews and not to 
present day Americans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but like the, the point was like in the, in the structure, a B C B a, like C is the important part. Like you yeah. should notice what's happening. And, and in this, Jesus is not giving an instructional for how to cast out demons. Right. He's like, the, the point is like faith. Cause so you have your a in this section, which is, you know, the transfiguration. Jesus mm-hmm. is God. Then you have here like B the uh, lack of faith. Yeah. It was going to crucify the son of man. Mm-hmm. And then you go back to a, which is Jesus is the son of God. Mm-hmm. And so like the important part is B and like, the, I feel like verse 21, like kind of is a, a, a rabbit trail almost yes. like helpful if you're trying to cast out demons, but like you're missing the point that the author's trying to make yes. to begin with. Exactly. And it, it, so that brings us back to the over the overarching conversation about fasting and why, because of its confusion, it has caused some stir and drama historically in different faith traditions. And so it is like, um, a religious, um, uh, priority for Catholics. I mean, Lent is all built into the, I mean, even the season we're in now leading up to Easter, like this is a season of fasting for the Catholic church. And so, um, that fasting gets built in. And this is one of those evidences where as the church has grown and as has spread out and different kind of groups and denominations have coalesced, there's going to be different priorities. And those who manage the, the duplication replication of the scriptures, and have this ability to influence. But what you'll find is that ability to influence is very, very, very slight. It is not vast. And where it exists, um, we have great data available to evaluate it. And so it's easy for me to look at it and go, oh, well, that's, that was, there's obviously a motive there to insert it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't need to be there. The text reads fine without it. The oldest texts we, we have don't have it in there. The newer ones that are, have it in there were copied broadly because they're in a very populous area and there's lots of copies made on those copies. And so we can hold them up to each other and see it's missing. And so what do we do? We either leave it in and put a footnote that says it's not in the earliest, or we take it out and we write a footnote that says this verse is missing because it seems to have been added. And based on your tradition, you have to kind of decide where you want it. Um, but again, brings us back to the conversation about fasting and how does it fit in? And I don't think that it makes any sense that Jesus would have had to have prayed and or fasted in order to cast out um, this particular demon. And the point here is the inability to cast out the demon had nothing to do with something Jesus needed to do or we needed to do differently. It had to do with who do we believe in? And so it's about faith. So good stuff, huh? That's a fun, rigorous little conversation. Um, yeah, so let's wrap it up. Um, fasting is an outward expression of an inward reality. We talk about this with baptism sometimes. And it's an outward expression of a shattered heart, whether in repentance or in adverse circumstances. And it becomes an urgent response of repentance and or great humility. And it brings about the seeking of deliverance from a gracious God in profoundly desperate situations. It's deeply personal and it's something that you can explore. There's lots of great books written on it, um, but what you won't find in the scriptures is the section on fasting that tells you what it is how to do it, how you do it differently as a Christian than a Jew. And so this is part of this journey of reading through the whole scriptures and understanding how they function separately in different eras and through chronologies and through uh, prophecy and fulfillment and over time in the church age. So really, really, really super good stuff. We didn't talk about Job um, at all. So maybe we'll have a separate podcast on Job because, man, I don't think we should be starting that conversation. Um, I did preach a sermon series from the entire book of Job where we... Um, read huge swaths of it and covered in entirety without reading on Sundays 
um, the whole entire book. And so that, that series is called Surprised by God. And it's one that anybody who's experienced unforeseen, sudden and painful, prolonged suffering, I think would really benefit from. Um, and I think people who tend to put God in a box and don't know what to do when God doesn't do the things you know that God should do. Um, it's also a fantastic series for you to get into. So um, we may or may not have time to be able to devote a midweek podcast to the book of Job, but uh, that whole series is available for your intake. So thanks for following and uh, enjoy your reading in the early Psalms. And uh, we look forward to connecting with you after Easter weekend. If you're listening to this in real time, we look forward to seeing you for one of our two Good Friday communion services or uh, this coming Saturday and pray for good weather. We reach out to our community through the Easter egg hunt and fun family stuff, nine to one on Saturday. And then first time ever doing four services on Sunday, eight, nine thirty, eleven, and twelve thirty. And uh, just looking forward to see how God's going to meet us and um, setting people free, man. Yeah, and, pr- and pray pray for those Sunday services because mm-hmm. this is one maybe one of two services that some people will go to church and those people need Jesus Absolutely. just as much as you and I do. Yeah, let's actually let's end the pro- the podcast today just um, just praying for them. So even if you're listening to this sometime after, uh, this is still God's heart no matter uh, when you're hearing it. But Lord, we pray uh, for those people uh, who known by name are on lists in our hearts, maybe on our refrigerator, people we've been praying for for a long time. God, our hearts are broken for those who are suffering under the consequences of their own mistakes or the hurts and pains and mistakes and sins of other people and who are broken and under the bondage of the ruler of this world. God, but we, we celebrate on Easter Sunday, God, that you were victorious, that you became like us, um, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that you have defeated the enemy of our souls and you have released us from the bondage of sin and gifted us eternal life. And God, our heart is that every single person who does not know you or who knows you and is under the weight of bondage uh, would have an insight and an experience of your spirit that allows us to cast off every weight that hinders God, that we would run free uh, with you and towards your purposes. And God, that is a miracle of your Holy Spirit. And so uh, we're excited to host and to lead and to, to sing and to preach and to pray. But Lord, we pray that we would have an encounter with you and that lives would be changed forever this Easter. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Look forward to being with you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.